Hey, it's Mike Halford from the Halford and Bruff Podcast. One, thanks for downloading. Two, thanks for listening. Three, why not leave a review while you listen to the podcast? And now, back to the show. 802 on a Tuesday. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. This hour of Halford and Bruff is brought to you by Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Trust the expertise of Campbell & Pound. Visit them online at campbell-pound.com today. We are also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. To the phone lines we go. It is Tuesday. It is 8 a.m. That can only mean one thing. Thomas Trance, Athletic Vancouver. You hear him right here on Sportsnet 650 as well. He joins us now on the Halbro Experience. What up, Drancer? Good morning, boys. How are you? We are well. How are you doing, friend? I'm doing okay. Yeah, Good. doing well. Um, it's, uh, it's a grind this time of year, but it, it's fun. It is. It is. Uh, you know what? We we started talking about Brock Besser right off the hop today, and someone yeah. texted in while we were having the conversation. Thomas Drance said that Brock Besser is not injury prone. They asked us if we agreed. I need to get the premise out there first, though. Is this true, Thomas Drance? Do you believe well, that Brock Besser is not injury prone? Maybe that was the wrong way of saying it. I, I just don't view him like – I view him the way I'd view one of those NFL running backs. If you're evaluating your like sort of a fantasy outlook where like, I'm not worried about him continuing to, to sustain injuries because these are all unrelated, you know, like yes. there, he, he seems unlucky more than he seems yeah, that's fair. injury prone. Yep. And, and when you look through it, he's missed 11 games on average, right? His games played totals look low. But, like, the season he was durable in or the seasons he was durable in were shortened, right? So he didn't miss a single game in the 56-game season, right? He only missed, uh, I think, nine in the season that was abbreviated or stopped in March 2020. Um, You know, 11 games on average a season with a variety of injuries that literally have nothing to do with one another, and and some of them are of of the freak variety. You know, I, I just I don't look at that as a injury like a player who with whom I have injury concerns. I guess the question now, as we prepare for practice today and tomorrow, and then a game against the Kraken on Seattle, is how the lines are affected by this. Because yeah, what do they do? Yeah, what do they do? Uh, Besser had been skating with Miller and Pearson. Um, we also don't know if Ilya Mikheyev how, how if his injury yeah. is apparently it's day to day. Um, so it doesn't sound super serious, but you never yeah. know how long these things can take. Um, Dolly Wall seems to be getting positive vibes on the Micaiah front. So, uh, you know, you hope that's the case. You know, here's the thing, gentlemen. I know the Canucks will say stuff like, oh, you know, we, we don't have a top line, right? Or, or we're going to have three balanced lines with Horvat, Pedersen, and Miller. But when you look at the calibration of those lines, right? There's one line that looks like it's built to be a, a, a matchup line, basically, right? And then there looks like there's two middle six lines, uh, at least, you know, this prior to the Besser injury, assuming full health, two, two sort of middle six lines where, where Bruce Boudreaux has pretty intentionally uh, put a defensive driver on each, right, in Mikhaev and Horvath. And so, you know, I think there is a pretty clear matchup line. And one thing there also is, and we've talked about this a bit, but look, there's not a lot of, forwards on this Canucks team that I think you look at as you know really reliable two-way guys guys who you trust implicitly at at, in a top of the lineup matchup role and Besser happens to be one of them and so you know he's not an easy player to replace right it's not as easy I don't think 
as plugging Niels Hoaglander, who Bruce Boudreaux's sort of expressed some, you know, need for growth defensively into a, into a, onto a line with Miller and Pearson, right? Like, I don't think it's that simple. I think this is one of those that requires multiple changes in part because there just aren't a lot of wingers on this team with the same two-way profile as Besser, right? I mean, Mikhaev's as good as he is, is better than he is defensively, but he is not near the dynamic offensive player that, that Besser is at his best. And then the other guys are either 20 years old, right? Or probably not players that most coaches would pick, you know, first name out of the hat to, to be on a matchup line. So, you know, Besser's injury hurts the team a fair bit, five on five. Um, and that's without getting into his power play impact. You know, I mean, it is going to be, it's not an easy one to replace. Uh, he's just got such a unique profile relative to the other Canucks forwards. I've heard a few people texting in and say the Canucks shouldn't even have a matchup line or uh, a shutdown line. They should just roll three lines and, and, and hope that they can outscore their problems. My response to that is they might not have a great matchup line, but every team has a matchup line that's going to get the assignments. Um, but I think a fair question is, is um, how much of a matchup coach is Bruce Boudreaux? Yeah, and not significantly, but, you know, there remained a pretty stratified top line when he took over, right? And, and often it was Pearson, Miller, Besser. And I think one of the things that sort of changed for the Canucks once they had that, particularly because, you know, Pedersen's two-way results took, even after Bruce Boudreaux took over, took another like 15 games before they really kicked into gear, right? It was sort of mid-January as opposed to early December of last season where, where Pedersen began to look a little bit more like the player we're used to, the driver that we're used to five on five. And Pearson Miller Besser was a really big part, I think, of changing Vancouver's fortunes, not just in terms of the offense generated, but in terms of playing consistently beneath the hash marks, right? Just like controlling play down low. And when you have that, it creates easier sledding for everybody else. Like you kind of need at least a line that can win the territorial matchup. That line consistently did so. And, you know, I think it helped. Like I think it was a key part of turning Vancouver's season around last year. Um, You know, I I think the Canucks are going to need to find a trio that can do something similar uh, right out of the gate, you know, in Besser's absence. Like I do think that's going to be a vital sort of thing to accomplish and and I wonder exactly how they approach it we'll learn a lot more about what Boudreaux's thinking at least out the gate when the club takes the ice at practice today who is the Canucks best defensive forward best two-way forward actually let's take Mikheyev out of the out of the yeah out of that because I think the answer is probably him but after that oh man I mean it's probably you know, you know, you can argue for Bo Horvat. You can argue for Elias Pettersson. You could argue for Tanner Pearson. I'd probably come down on, on Elias Pettersson because of the play driving. But it's also been a little bit touch and go, right? There have been stretches like the 2021 season um, where, where that wasn't the case, or the first half of last season where that wasn't the case. Um, but in terms of his anticipation, overall awareness, uh, ability to drive play most of the time, uh, albeit – you know, it's been a little bit inconsistent. Uh, you know, for me, it would it would have to be Pedersen. It's just you know, yeah. there's there's just not a lot of of that type of player, of that type of skill set in Vancouver. And I, I think that's one of the things 
that you know I'm I'm eager to see this club sort of prove right. Me like, too. Yeah, me too. You need you need to you need to have high end competitors. Like it's one reason why people write down Vancouver's you know top nine forward group and Calgary's top nine forward group and go, man, Vancouver's way better. And it's like, yeah. May I mean I get what you're saying. Like the names are sexier, the ceiling might be higher, but you know a player like a Tyler Toffoli, right? Who who can plug into a top line without question, or Manji Apani, who's like a top end contributor, or Blake Coleman. Not to mention the defensive skill set of those three centermen. Like you know, there's a difference between being an exciting, talented hockey player and being the type of guy who can you know help a really good team win games. And that's sort of where you know, there's some Canucks players here that I, that I know are really talented guys, but can they make that transition to being guys who help you win? And and that's sort of a lingering question out there for me. Yeah. What did you think of JT Miller's comments on that, that very topic that he wants to become better in his own end? Well, I I thought it was great. I mean, JT Miller's so self-aware. His hockey analysis is so um, like, so high end, right? And and so I thought his, you know, sort of pointed commentary about wanting to be a better defensive player, I thought that was just, you know, extremely dispassionate and accurate. Like a, a type of yeah. self-awareness we could all do well to have in our in our own professional lives. I thought it was dead on, bullseye. And, you know, what sort of interests me about JT, too here, gentlemen, is who's the Canucks' best two-way winger? It's the first-line center, JT Miller. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's another sort of thing to look at here. Right. There's a difference in responsibility on the wing and at center. And so where JT Miller may need to improve his defensive game as a centerman, as a winger, he's really good. A legit driver. Right. Like he's one of the best uh, this team has had in years. Uh, there's a ton of stuff he does away from the puck as a winger that is excellent um, defensively speaking. So, you know, I. I sort of wonder too. I don't think they're there yet, but uh, and I, I would be shocked if we see this at any point without you know the club having sort of explored every option and seen it fail first. But you know, if the club does find at any point that they need an additional driver on the wing, I mean, you, you kind of have a ready-made first-line winger, a guy who's been really, really good in that spot, playing out of position, well, playing at center anyway for now. Um, you know, that could be a possible solution too if uh, if it turns out that Besser's as difficult to replace as I think he could be. Uh, let's talk a bit about the defense now. The Quinn Hughes move to the right side. What is the main driver behind that experiment? Well, I mean, I think it's multifaceted with two sort of main things. So let me get into them separately. The first is, I don't think Vancouver loved their options on the right side of the defense, um, on, on right defense throughout free agency, right? Like, I think they knew even prior to the offseason that they were going to have a really tough time upgrading the right side to the point where they were comfortable with it, right? Um, you know, I, I believe that they kicked the tires a little bit on some of the available free agents, but, uh, you know, I just don't think they ever thought that they'd, they'd that the player that they felt they needed was was out there. And so I think even before the off season began, the club was, you know, well aware that moving a guy like Dermot or a guy like Oliver Ekman Larson over uh, was a distinct possibility. The Quinn Hughes thing came a little bit later. Uh, additionally, I think there's a belief that if you play Oliver Ekman Larson a little bit 
higher up the lineup in more offensive situations. If you play him with Quinn Hughes, you get a little bit more offensively out of Ekman Larson, especially because it's really hard to slot him onto power play one, considering the way that Vancouver's sort of four guys up high and Miller, Pedersen, Horvat, and Hughes, you know, like they have such exceptional chemistry, um, you know, throwing the puck around. You know, it's hard to slot Ekman Larson into that first power play spot. And yet, you know, in the games that Quinn Hughes, like Quinn Hughes missed seven games last season. And in those seven games, Oliver Ekman Larson had eight points. Right. I mean, he's sort of best utilized as one of those more offensive, uh, like top end power play defensemen. You'll, you'll get a lot out of him if you can use him like that. And yeah. Considering the term and, and money on his deal, you know, you, you'd like to put him in the best possible position to succeed. You know, he, he acquitted himself exceptionally well as a matchup defenseman. He's like a he's like a classy two way guy. Right. He can do a lot offensively. He absolutely uh, rebounded in terms of his defensive form in his first year in Vancouver. It looked like a really good fit for him in that first season. And yet, you know, ideally you don't want him just doing the matchup thing, considering that cap money and considering his unused offensive toolkit in that role. So I think getting the most out of, you know, a a 31-year-old defenseman who the club's got a lot invested in, uh, you know, I think that's a big part of this too. So who does the matchup role, I guess, is the question. Because in in, in my mind, it it felt like Oliver ekman Larson just kind of took over the Alex Edler role, right? Right. You're just, you're the workhorse out there and you're going to get the tough assignments and we still would like it if you would chip in offensively, but your most important role is to be the steady veteran guy that we can throw out there against the other team's best players. Yeah, well, you know, I think what you do is just play your defense defensive group straight up right it's not it's not that you have a designated matchup role so much as you just absolutely run Ekman Larson and Hughes out if they're together on a pair like I think they have to play a lot I think it's your best chance of having one of those you know 22 minute a night um, groups that can help you tilt the ice right and then that creates a 18 minute second pair and a 15 or 10 to 15 minute third pair and that's sort of how you run yeah. You, you run with the guys with the big horses at the top and you run them pretty hard. Uh, I mean, that, that would be how it looks to me to be shaping up, particularly as, you know, a lot of what the Canucks have done to this point in the training camp preseason stage of the year, like really strongly suggests to me that they're still gathering information on, on what looks to be a multi-year project to get this defense core to be where it needs to be. Yeah. You know, you think about Danny DeKaiser getting thrown into a top four role, like right off the bat with Tyler Myers, right? And they, and they keep him in Vancouver, even though he's, he hits the seven veteran minimum, right? And would help you send a younger team um, of, of effective cannon fodder to Calgary in that split squad game. But they keep him in Vancouver uh, for a long, like a more, like a close look, like Boudreaux's there, more of management's there, right? They really gave him and prioritized giving him that longer look in Vancouver. And the other guy they did that with, gentlemen, was Jet Wu, right? And Jet Wu was also the only guy in Whistler who they moved, like they changed his grouping for the third day of training camp so that he could scrimmage for a third time, right? So they're clearly trying to get a long look, too, at the 22-year-old 2018 second-round pick, uh, just to see if there's anything there, right? Like, I, I don't know that DeKaiser or Wu, and this is from the organization's perspective, 
have necessarily done more than be okay or, or, you know, give them something to think about. I don't think either of these guys have, have blown the door off. Uh, you know, I think the standout uh, in terms of those fringe defenders to this point in training camps, Jack Rathbone and, and by a fair margin. But I do think the usage of Wu and DeKaiser, the length of the look that they're getting really does sort of draw, you know, multiple red underline on the defensive issue, on the obvious Achilles heel of this team. And the fact that this management group wants to gather as much data about their in-house options as possible as we approach Canadian Thanksgiving, as we approach the opening day roster deadline and sort of the waiver activity that typically comes before it. Like this club's very clearly still analyzing what they have with an eye to toward what they could possibly bring in to improve this situation. Jancer, does moving Quinn Hughes to the right side have anything to do about finding a spot on the left side for Jack Rathbone? I, I think that would be very much secondary. Um, you know, Dermot can move over to the right side too, if need be, right? So if if you decided that, you, you know, you needed Rathbone, you, you wanted to play Ekman, Larson, and Hughes separately on the left side, you know, you could move Dermot over to the right and maybe you wouldn't play him with Jack Rathbone, but you could do something like Jack Rathbone, Tyler Myers, um, you know, Shen Hughes and Dermot OEL, right? Like that would be a possibility as well. So, you know, I don't think the, you could move another guy. Like there are two other options that I think the team is comfortable experimenting with on the right side on this roster right now that would still carve out the space for Rathbone if he demanded it. I think the Ekman Larson thing looms far larger than the, than the Jack Rathbone playing time thing in, in motivating um, Vancouver's experiment, the, the Quinn Hughes on the right side project, as it were. How much of a wild card could Rathbone be this season though? Yeah, I mean, big, for sure. Like, you know, it comes down to the fact that he addresses this club's biggest weakness, right? I I mean... Yeah, puck moving ability, that sort of thing. Yeah, their biggest weakness is their skill and transition and the speed of their blue line, right? That's that's the biggest weakness this team has. Jack Rathbone is made for the contemporary game. And, you know, if he can hold up um, defensively and bring the sort of competitiveness that he has typically at the American league level that he had in, in div one. Um, you know, in, he's a fa- he's an offensive defenseman, but there's some fire in his belly, right? Like there's a, there's a core of steel there. There's a willingness to play bigger than his size. Um, you know, there's a big shot. Uh, there's a ton of speed. There's a ton of skill. And yeah, I mean, he looks like the way NHL defensemen are increasingly looking and Vancouver's defense other than Quinn Hughes is otherwise throwback. Right, uh, you need you need some additional push from the back end uh, if you're able to get him, Dermot, and Hughes on all into the in the lineup. I mean, that's just a much faster group, like a much more dynamic transitional group than the team had last season. Um, still needs some work, right? I mean, other teams have more uh, for sure, but you know, I think that gives them their best chance of uh, at least being a team that's not stuck in the mud that, that can find an answer, right? Like, can you find an answer against a team that can break the puck out cleanly, right? Like against those teams. And we saw it so often last year 
where, like, I think about that Capitals game that the Canucks lost at home or some of the games against Calgary. Like, remember the Calgary game where they had eight shots on goal or whatever? Yeah. And it was like the forecheck just wasn't working, right? These teams are good enough, savvy enough to manage the puck with extraordinary discipline, mm-hmm. right? And when the Canucks forecheck doesn't generate it chances doesn't result in those sort of quick strike against uh, opportunities for Vancouver's forwards. If Vancouver's forwards aren't creating those chances themselves and power plays, not, you know, filling the net, like do the Canucks have a plan B? Like, can they generate offense themselves without leaning on, on their forwards? And so often last year, I felt like the answer was no, because they couldn't break out. They couldn't hit forwards in stride in the neutral zone. They couldn't, you know, attack as a five-man unit the way that the best offenses in the league do, uh, particularly last season, Colorado and Florida, although I sort of suspect that Florida's ability will be a little bit compromised because uh, of the loss of Mackenzie Weger. So, you know, that if Jack Rathbone can play and if he can play a major role, I think it could go a long way toward addressing that particular issue uh, on Vancouver's back end. Transfer, this was great. Thanks a lot for doing it. Uh, enjoy UBC today and tomorrow and the game on Thursday. We'll do this again next Tuesday. Yeah, thanks, boys. I'm, I'm going to go live from, uh, from UBC, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, should be fun. And uh, everyone, tune in to Connects Hour a couple hours from now. And thanks for having me, boys. Bye. Have, have a good show. Thanks, bud. Thomas Trance from the Athletic Vancouver and the Connects Hour, plural, hours here on the uh, home of your Vancouver Canucks, Sportsnet 650. We promised that the final half hour of this program would be all humanoids submitted what we learns. We are going to stay true to that promise by doing our what we learns now. And there's only going to be one. And that is courtesy of Jason Bruff Esquire, who's going to do his now. Uh, yeah, I learned that I cannot wait to see how the Brooklyn Nets do this season. Because I'm not even sure what is the most interesting facet of this whole thing. There's obviously four big ones. Kyrie. What's he going to be like? What's he going to say? Uh, What's his next belief going to be? There's KD, who clearly wanted out of the organization, um, no matter how they're spinning it. There's Ben Simmons, who who I guess is going to play. I guess. And then, of course, for sports fans in in this area, um, we're obviously interested in, in seeing how Steve Nash handles all this. And honestly, how long he lasts as the coach? The answer will be not long, unfortunately. I liked his quote yesterday. Um, and the Brooklyn Nets had their had their uh, media day. And Steve Nash goes, <laughs> families go through things like this. They go through adversity. They go through disagreements. This is not new to the NBA. It has happened dozens of times. I'm sure every organization has faced that. Hey, I get it. There have been some really interesting basketball teams mm-hmm. in terms of the characters. I mean, we saw one up close with the Last Dance documentary. Uh, the personalities on that team, the egos, the jealousies, the uniqueness of a guy like Dennis Rodman who just one day would be like, oh, I'm going to Vegas, yeah. <laughs> right? Like things like that. I get it. So in in some ways, Steve Nash is absolutely right. But this is one interesting family. They right? are. Yeah, I, I didn't like that he he took the family analogy because a lot of people on Twitter were joking. We're like, you know how this works. Uh, someone's got to come in and say, hey, 
when you got a family, sometimes there's tough times, but we get through it together as a family. It's the most tired cliche yeah. that a coach can throw out there. And they're also... It's a catch-all for saying, like, I got a bunch of head cases, but they're my kids. Yeah, right? and I also don't feel like they are they are sticking together. You know, KD tried to leave. Well, KD tried to get him. A, he tried to get rid of Steve Nash before he tried to leave. Yeah. That was the ultimatum. Yeah, and they can they say tried to get they, rid of dad. They could say, yeah, right. <laughs> the emancipation, I think. It's, it, and you look at it, and it's uh, it's a bad situation. Nash. So there's two coaches that are on the hot seat more than anyone right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that I'm a Yodoka's not on it. Uh, it's Steve Nash and it's Doc Rivers. So Doc Rivers in Philadelphia is on borrowed time, I think. Yeah. They crashed out of the playoffs embarrassingly last year. They got a MVP caliber year from Embiid and wasted it. And the Harden situation. Apparently, James Harden lost 100 pounds, though. So that's good. 100? You guys were talking about this 100 this pounds? I think he was. He was being facetious. But he said he lost 100 pounds yesterday. Um, the big difference there between the two coaches mm-hmm. is that Doc Rivers has a legacy as a coach. He's got championships. He's an established veteran head coach that probably has a little bit of a longer leash. This is Steve Nash's first foray into this. It might be his last. There might not be a Steve Nash coaching career beyond this. Could anyone be successful in this situation with those personalities? I mean, the one thing is they're so talented. Yes. I mean, say what you will about Kyrie. Mm Mm-hmm. Dude is a really good basketball player. And obviously, KD, um, Simmons, I don't know what he is right now. I think what they thought was that because Nash had such a compelling gravitational pull as a player, like he could bring people together because he was such a great distributor and he was selfless. He was a, he was a pass-first guy. He was the art of making his teammates better. I think, and perhaps erroneously, they thought that that would translate over into coaching that he was going to make everybody better because he understood the game at a certain fundamental level. I think what you're seeing is, and this goes back to the great Bulls teams that you were talking about, in a leadership position, which it is, even though you're working with the players, um, you need to be a personality manager with this kind of collection of guys almost first and foremost. X's and O's, yeah, and I know that KD was upset about the way that they lost to Boston, that maybe they didn't have a tactician at the helm. But you almost need a guy that's going to come in and manage the personalities first and then worry about the basketball second. Did you see that meme? (laughs) It's not even a meme. It was just some guy came up with a good line. He said, I wonder how many times KD's got to say, damn, that's crazy, whenever he has a conversation with Kyrie. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's that's crazy, Kyrie. Oh, yeah, the – the enforced vaccine pandemic is one of the what was it, what did Katie say? The uh, the biggest violation of human rights in history. Kyrie, sorry. Kyrie okay. said that. Yeah. Kyrie said yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah, Kyrie. Uh, ships do drop off the edge of the planet when they get to the edge. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. Do you know how few books you'd have to read <laughs> in order to ignore all the other human rights violations in world history? I mean, he. The more he talks, the less good he's such he does. a he's such a martyr now. He's well, he's trying to be a martyr. He's like, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. Who is it? That, Howard Bryant had it bad. <laughs> Howard Bryant's a good writer, and he had it on Twitter that Kyrie is a disruptor without a cause. That that's what his position in life has become. 
is that he wants to disrupt, but he doesn't necessarily know what cause is worth disrupting. Right. Right. It's but he wants the, to do something. He, he wants, wants to. Yeah, yeah. He wants to. And you know, I, I don't know. It's just the best framing that I've ever seen of it is that there's something inherently contrarian and pushback and anti-authority and anti-establishment. I just don't think that he knows where to direct it. Yeah. He seems like a directionless guy at times. That's the, my opinion on the it. The voiceless comment was funny. I liked Mina Kimes' response to it. She retweeted it and said, uh, for the voiceless, we sure do hear from them a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the true, voiceless. actually. They get a lot of attention, yeah. don't they? Kyrie especially. Anyway. It's weird. Just a weird little nugget. Uh, it. Yep. Okay. Last half hour, humanoids, get them in. Hashtag WWL. It's what we learned. What did you learn? Over the last 24 hours in sports, let us know. It's your chance to be on the radio. And it's all coming up next on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Eight thirty-six on a Tuesday, Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford and Bruff of the morning is brought to you by Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Trust the expertise of Campbell and Pound. Visit them on the internet at campbell-pound.com today. We are also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. To the humanoids, we go. Fire up that dot matrix. It's what we learn. Time. I forgot Krusty today. That's ah, fine. People get the gist. But we do have to make that a, a part of the traditions here. Yes. You see, um, Hurricane Ian, so named after our former show producer, Ian McClatchy. Hurricane Ian is uh, its hitting, I guess, the Tampa Bay-specific area yeah. of Florida. They've moved a couple of lightning games, preseason games, out of the area. Uh, and then I believe that the Buccaneers are practicing in Miami. South Florida, yeah. And there's a chance that they might move the game. Now, the thing is, you kind of have to move the game entirely out of state. I didn't realize this, but it makes sense. You don't want to take away any resources, like game day resources, that could be used in hurricane relief. Like, for example. You almost don't want to encourage people to travel. Yeah, and you don't want, like, police officers and any sort of first responders Mm -hmm. having to be at the field. So just something to keep an eye on is, and obviously uh, hopes that the damage is minimal and that, you know, lives lost or nil as Hurricane Ian descends on Florida. But that's, that was what's happening right now. I just wanted to get everyone up to speed on that. Kevin on the road with a, what we learned Brock Besser needs to change his Jersey number. The injured ghost of Sammy Sallow is still strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just feel bad for, for Besser. And I, and I agree with, with Drancer in that I don't think there's anything about Brock Besser that makes him injury prone. Sometimes you're just unlucky. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just pick up these knocks that, um, you know, whether it's a, a broken hand here or, um, you know, whatever he's had, like a skate cut. I don't know. I don't, not, not saying he's had one of those, but those are the types of injuries. The injuries that you really have to be concerned about long term would be, I would say it's twofold. Like, number one, it's, like you said earlier, if um, you've got, like, a wonky groin or hip, shoulder, something that um, is chronic, right? Mm -hmm. The word would be chronic. And I think the other one would be, like, in the case of Chris Tanev, 
you play hockey in a style, in a manner that's going to get you hurt. Like you are the opposite of Keith Yandel. You are the opposite of Phil Kessel. Every shot block that you can make, you're going to try and make it almost like you enjoy pain. Yeah. Um, I, as far as changing his number, sure. I never thought six was a forwards number anyway, but I digress. I've got one here from Colin and Tawasson. Hashtag WWO, what we learned. Steve Francis will be reportedly making an appearance at the Grizzly Truth documentary, documentary premiere at the Vancouver Film Festival. This is true. I guess he changed his tune about Vancouver only about 25 years too late. So, for those that have no idea what any of this means, one... Uh, Kat Jamie, who did the Big Country documentary previously, came on our show to preview the fact that her next documentary, The Grizzly Truth, about the Vancouver Grizzlies leaving Vancouver, is going to premiere on Saturday, October 1st at VIF, Vancouver International Film Festival. It has been announced over the last 24 hours that maybe, I can't say the most polarizing figure, because there was a lot of polarizing figures in the Grizzlies' downfall, but Steve Francis was sure one of them. He makes an appearance in the film, because I've seen the trailer, He's going to be coming to Vancouver. We tried to get him on the show, but he's only doing media. Sorry, Adog, can you jump in here? Because I know you're doing the chase. Yeah, uh, he didn't want to go before 10 a.m., so I, I believe. <laughs> no, really. Sounds like Steve Francis. Really. Uh, so uh, I believe he might be on the People's Show on Friday, yeah. but I can't confirm Well, that. that'll be cool if he's if he's on the station. I believe he he will be on Friday, but I once again, not confirmed. Now, the one thing I do want to say, and I, you made a joke, the timing of this isn't going to be great, but whatever. Um Steve Francis's life has not been great post basketball. Yeah. Um, especially over the last few years, his stepfather committed suicide. He began drinking really heavily, uh, and has battled alcohol addiction and ran into a bunch of legal problems. Um, I am hopeful that I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I am hopeful that, um, he's gotten his life back on track and maybe that this, uh, can portray him in a light where he's overcome a lot of the issues that he's had. But there was a lot of bad times within the last five or six years for Steve Francis. I know um, seeing just the trailer, there was the sort of same element of trying to track him down that Cat had with Big Country. Like it was part of the chase, part of the allure. Because remember, Francis was vilified by fans for how upset he was that Vancouver selected him, how much he didn't want to play here. So I'm really... Really fascinated to see this. Unfortunately, I can't go on Saturday because I forgot we've got a family wedding. But um, I'm going to try and go to the second viewing, which I believe is October 6th. And Kat's really good at this. Um, I think you saw the Big Country documentary, right? Yep. I think she did a really great job with that. And I think that based on what I've been told, the amount of access that she got to former players and former employees and former executives is going to tell the story like it's never been told before. I, I think I'd like to just understand more of where he was at at that position where he made the decision to do what he did at the draft, yep. right? Yep. And not come to Vancouver and act the way he did. Uh, maybe he's looked back on that and he said, I do things differently. Maybe he's looked back and said, I do things the, the exact same way. I did not want to come to Vancouver. Don't take it personally, but I didn't want to. Uh, I just want to understand a little bit more. You remember this better than I do. Yep. When it happened, was there any understanding of it, or was it more just surface level, I don't want to come to Canada? He made it pretty clear in the pre-draft and lead-up that he wasn't interested in coming to Vancouver. 
And when he got drafted, it because was, it's Vancouver or yeah. just Canada, yeah. he didn't want to come to Canada. Yeah, it was Is far away. It? Oh, he was born and raised in Maryland. Yeah, he went to university at Maryland. He didn't have exactly the most worldly view of what other places were like. He didn't have a very good understanding of what that was going to be. And you got to remember, for a lot of players, that's leaving behind every sort of comfort that they have. You know, a lot of uh, guys that grew up in tough circumstances, had a very tight-knit insular community that kept them away from things like yeah. gangs and drugs and the streets. Leaving that to go across the continent and then go to a different country was super overwhelming. Mm-hmm. He handled it awful. Right. but I, So I'm wondering if like, we're, we're going to look back and, and there will be any admission that he could have handled it better. You don't, you don't know. We don't know what he's going to say. Wait, That's why you got to go you know, see like, the documentary. I, I, go well, on October 1st and October 6th and check out you know, Cat's, I, I, Cat's film. And I really hope uh, Steve Francis is on the station. Um, Joe Bob with a, what we learned. The Dallas Cowboys are doing mighty fine without Dak Prescott at the helm. They may even be better. Do we need to calm down a little bit on what the Cowboys have done in the last two games? The only thing I'll say is that what they did last night. Remember when I made them the lock in week one against yeah, Tampa, Tampa Bay? Bay. Because I said, they've got a really good defense and a really, really good pass rush. Maybe that'll translate into throwing Tom Brady off rhythm. And and this was when they had Dak Prescott, a quarterback. Did not think that they would come out and score a grand total of three points in their home opener on Sunday Night Football. I I mean, they've got back-to-back wins. That Giants team was kind of a fraud. But they did what they needed to do defensively because they that was a tie game. Going essentially like it was up for grabs, and they took over in the second half, and the defense was really good. I'm not really all that convinced that they're anything more than a fringe playoff team in the weaker of the two conferences. Mm-hmm. That's where I'd put them. Uh, what we learned unsigned is that this Blue Jays team is really good, and teams not to watch out because postseason Springer is a god, and the Jays will be one of the teams to beat this postseason. Yeah, I I don't think anyone looks at this Blue Jays team and thinks. Wow, well, they're not going to do anything in the postseason. I mean, they got star power. They've got uh, if their starting pitching is mm-hmm. it, uh, is you know like the, the wanna... it's actually going to be a hard decision. Uh, Laddie, would you agree with me on who would be the second starter? Yeah, I just think you know you, you kind of erase the Barrios from that conversation with he's the gone. way he's done he's this done. year. But yeah. anyone else could honestly be in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Stripling has been awesome. Got to be Gossman. Gossman's been awesome. Got to be Gossman. It's got to be Manoa and Gossman. Uh, and I thought that would be my choice. And then know. strip for number three. And then chicken strip. Comes yeah, that's not that's not a bad number three when you look at the yep. season numbers. I, yeah, I, I, I'm very I'm comfortable gonna, uh, going into the playoffs. I'm going to ask you a question. My this is my 11 year old's every sports question for everything. Who's your favorite Blue Jay? <laughs> Seriously, right now it's hard not to say Alec Manoa because he came through Vancouver. He was such mm-hmm. a nice guy when he was here. Uh, big big love for Chappie though, and in the second half, you like Chappie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My kids' favorite player is George Springer. Okay. Love Springer Dinger. Springer Dinger plays with good energy. I like it. I th- and in that leadoff spot, he gets things going. Yeah, I feel like Chappie's big with the kids, do, though, too. Like, he's the new guy, but I feel like he's... Uh... Kids do love Chappie. Yeah. Who was your favorite Jay growing up? Growing up? <laughs> it was Eric Hinsky. Oh, my God. Eric Hinsky? Eric Hinsky. He's younger than us, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I grew up in that era, though. I grew up in that era. I'm surprised I'm, it's not Carlos Delgado. I like left-handed hitting. I'm a lefty, so I just I gravitate to the left-handed hitting <laughs> third baseman. That's like me. I like I loved Petri Skriko. Yeah. yeah. John Olerud was like before that. He was. You know, yeah. You know, Mariners fans can respect. John My Olerud. favorite Jay from um the, those the teams that we remember the '91 I was Tom Hankey. Right. That but that was largely because of the look and everything. Kelly and then, Gruber. Well, he had the glasses, right? The... Yeah, he did. He had the glasses. Yeah. Absolutely. You were a Gruber guy. 
That's just the only name I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> I had his baseball card for some reason. So I have no idea the, why. The other thing was, was <laughs> back when we were in our early blogging days, they gave us access to Nat Bailey, and we did a, a video series thing with um, Josh Barfield. Jesse Barfield's yep. kid. Man, we had a funny back and forth with him. And eh? all, all we did was ask him about old Blue Jays that his dad played with. And it was awesome because he remembered all of them, yeah. right? It was great. That was that was a lot of fun. What was one of the questions was like, was Nelson Liriano and Manny Lee the same person? Yeah, there was that one. And it was, it was Al Leiter still on the DL with a finger blister? You just, you just had to remember some guys <laughs> segment with him. You just kept remembering guys. Remember Al Leiter? You always had blisters. That's all I remember about him. They had so many random dudes. Rance Mullenix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great. Ernie Witt firing up the first baseline. <laughs> maybe, maybe the slowest runner that I've ever seen. <laughs> he had, the, like, the old catcher's knees. Like, he would hit the ball. It would be a grounder. It would be like, oh, God, i got to run. He <laughs> ran. Like, you know the end of Major Crap. League when Jake Taylor lays down the ball? Yeah, he was Jake Taylor. Everything he's doing to get down the first baseline, and then he collapses at the end <laughs> under, under intense knee pain. Okay. Uh, this one's from uh, Gary, middle name Gary, last name Garrison. Uh, what we okay. learned, history could be repeating itself. I'm a Broncos fan. I've hated Russ since the Super Bowl. Now the guy who won a championship against my team is captaining said team after his prime. Serious Mark Messier vibes going down in Denver. Hashtag sports hurt. So did you – I never evolved because there's too many storylines with Russ. I never even thought about that one, that Russ was the guy that beat – the Cowboys in or the Cowboys, the Broncos in the Super Bowl. I never looked at it from the Broncos fan perspective, where it's like we hate this guy mm-hmm. at one point because he he beat us in the Super Bowl. Right. There were so many different angles to it. I guess there's something to be said there. Um, as a Broncos fan, I you need to tell me what you're feeling as a Broncos fan because I imagine it's got to be one of the most conflicted things on earth right now. I've got a buddy that's a that it's a uh, is a Broncos fan, and we've been making some texts <laughs> so like all our buddies are kind of piling on um the fact is though the broncos are two and one but they just looked they've looked awful mm-hmm. and i said uh you know uh it's a good thing he's he's locked up long term because uh they're going to need some time to figure out this <laughs> offense and he's like that's not helping uh marcus and gibson's with the what we learned hashtag wwl i learned that both the cowboys and the giants definitely aren't worthy of primetime games but here we were, stuck watching another dud on Monday night. So uh, the, I did the research, the, and my conclusion is the primetime games have been garbage so far. I, th- I think the best one was probably the maybe the opener between the Bills and the Rams. Well, the Seahawks game was was That's compelling. the only it one. It was compelling. That's the only one. It wasn't quality football, but it was compelling. Compared to some of them, it actually was quality football, but yeah. that was the only one. Like, here's the thing. Sunday night football. Uh, this past week between the Niners and the Broncos. Um, could you make the case that that was a good football game because it was close at the end and it was – No. For, so, no. It was, yeah. Okay. No. Just, yeah. So I that's, mean, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was compelling. But I like I, the, the Broncos-Seahawks game was not a well-played game. It was maybe better played than the Broncos-49ers game. But the, <laughs> you know what the Broncos-49ers game was? Hilarious. That's yeah. the word I would. It was comical. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was. It was Especially fun with Jimmy to watch. G, Jimmy G running. Yeah, like, like that was uh, running into like out right out of bounds. By the way, the um, the Thursday night football game this week. Did you see that the Bengals are wearing the all white, like the the rare white Bengal uniforms? Oh, I kind of like those. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what they look like in real time, but they're certainly different. They're certainly different. Uh, Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen. What we learned: the Seattle Kraken are getting a mascot. What? 
The announcement is expected this Saturday, October 1st. I did not okay. know that. What kind of what it's kind a giant of, squid? Yeah. It's got to be right. Squid. Big, pay, big, big, yar squiddy. You can high five eight kids at once. You have to sign a waiver if you want to talk with. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not. I guess they need one, right? Because every team has a mascot. It should just be Zoidberg. That should be their mascot from uh, Futurama. Yeah, just mm. walk around in a Zoidberg costume. Here's oh, here's wow. a here's a trivia question. It's Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> besides the Kraken. Who is the only only NHL team to never have had a mascot? Ooh, that's good. Never have had a mascot. I'm relying on Wikipedia here. By Detroit the way. Red Wings. No, they've got an octopus. Al, Al the octopus. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> the, the Bruins have octopi. One? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have a bear. Yeah, the bear. They have a bear. Yeah. yeah. How oh, typical. Bruin or something. Uh, I don't know who is it. The Rangers. No, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Didn't they like a school. It's a park ranger, isn't it? I thought it was a statue of Liberty it's a park. Park. It's a statue. It's a park ranger. He just walks around. He goes around ticking, ticking people. Their dogs one. are urinating in Central Park. He's hiring like, one of the guys on uh, t- in Times Square to come to the game. <laughs> the Statue of Liberty yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> With the makeup running because it's so hot out. Yeah, you can't move. Have for you bathed in a while? Yeah, you can't move for 60 minutes, just like the real statue. That's uh, weird. I, I would have figured they would have had one by now. Uh, you don't need a mascot. Let's be real. They don't need mascots. They Why? Don't. Mascots are important, I think, for kids. Um, for adults too. <laughs> I was honestly, I was, I was. Or large ex- children like Andy. I was. Uh, I actually never got to meet Gritty when we went to Philly because uh, he had an unbelievable security detail around him. Yeah, <laughs> were they also mascots? <laughs> yeah, it was like the, the ma- <laughs> they were all dressed up. No, it was, it was unbelievable. There's a fish. I think, I think when we when we went to Philly, it was almost the height of gritty mania yeah like there could be a 30 for 30 on gritty he was making he's more popular than the players he was he was, he was on it was he was on fallon and jimmy was... kimmel like he was very popular um yeah i so th- my the only thing i really like about mascots so in the uk um there's a guy who's collected a bunch of s- snapshots of when <laughs> the mascots are on the field it's kind of morbid, and they have to take part in the moment of silence. So it's like, oh my god, <laughs> oh, no. it's, it's eleven players lined up, and then, and then there's like a gigantic like hammer, Capital City goofball, just standing there, <laughs> yeah, right with his head. Do you there. take the head off, or do you no, 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 bow it? So West Ham, the <laughs> the mascot is a gigantic rubber hammer, and then oh, he's no. got his he's got his arms on his back, and the top of the hammer like bent and the, like. And the kicker will be like he'll be wearing a poppy. Yeah, <laughs> they hug him to comfort <laughs> him. Remember today. Hug him to comfort him. You just hear a little squeak. Beep. On the solemn day. Yeah, no one loved the queen quite like this hammer. <laughs> Man, I'm looking at some, uh, I'm looking at the list of uh, mascots here. Yeah. This is a pretty lame name for the Washington Capitals um, mascot. Slapshot. What is it? It's a bald eagle. <laughs> I don't get the Leafs one. Is it Carlton the Bear? Yeah, well, Carlton. Uh, yeah, there must be a significance to no, it. But I defer to you for all things barely Arctic. ever in the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Carlton's name and number comes from the location of Maple Leaf Gardens, yeah. 60 Carlton Street Boring. in Toronto. You're, I would defer to you for all things Ontario. You're supposed to know this stuff. I don't look up the Leafs mascot uh, details. You're, you're supposed to know it inherently. Yeah. Your Ontario is not showing. I like. I, I kind of like this, right? Like the Winnipeg Jets mascot. His nickname is Benny. Right, Benny and the Jets. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a I did slap shot. Slap shots just. That's yeah. like, when are we gonna call this guy? I don't know. Slap shot. Somebody's kid the movie? It's a good movie. Somebody's child named that one. Well, you know what? 
we did get to a lot of humanoid submissions. I am not in the business of patting ourselves on the back, but I think we did a decent job today, everybody. So good job. Uh, we'll try again to be better tomorrow. Maybe we will. Uh, but for now, we got to get out of here because the music is playing. Enjoy the rest of the day. We'll be back with a Wednesday show tomorrow. Signing off, I have been Mike Alford. He's been Jason Bruff. He has been Laddie. He has been the A-Dog. No bark. This has been the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet. There it is, 650.